0: back to coffee and canvas we're all be joined today by the cannabis sommelier andrew friedman andrew is a wine scholar educator content creator and the author of his new book terpenes for well being In the episode, we talk about Andrew's early experience in the cannabis industry and how the legal market still has room to grow. We talk about cannabis pairing with wines and beers. We also talk about how passionate chefs are paving the way for cannabis dining, cuisine, and high-end events. So Andrew, tell me, um, we talked a little bit about you doing YouTube and doing your own thing. In short, who is the Cannabis Somaliate? What are you working on right now?
1: I am a very multifaceted individual who has about a million things on the go all the time. Um, I work as a freelance consultant all throughout cannabis, Um, again in every facet of that, from dispensary, floor, uh, you know, opening a new dispensary to improving your sales techniques and tactics. Luckily, I come from some great retail and CPG background. Um, all the way to consulting with LPs, um, helping them grow better cannabis for solventless extraction. Um, I just uh, wrote a book that's being published in April uh, called Terpenes for Well Being." So nice. it's really uh, the hype up to that. And it's been selling really well uh, in Canada, especially on Amazon. That's really cool. Um, of course, there's uh, my YouTube channel, The Cannabis Sommelier. That's a weekly video of reviews. Mm-hmm man what else just like there's so many exciting things uh i i wrote the tv show that's still just what i'm dialed into and yeah. what i would love to do it's just kind of weird navigating that space now um especially from from home uh mm-hmm. and when we can again it's uh it's dining events um yeah. i miss doing the fine dining cannabis events so much and speaking uh, it's it's always different like speaking in at my desk to a camera and <laughs> a room full of invisible people, rather than standing on a stage, exhilarating and heart throbbing. Yeah. So yeah.
0: Yeah, a lot going on, and I'm I'm curious. I mean, if you you look at your resume, it's clearly what I, I it's a, what I would call an unconventional career path, um, and something that and and I'm I'm just really curious about what what did you want to do. You know, originally growing up, I'm sure not a lot of people would say, oh, I love to work in the cannabis industry. It's usually I'd like to be an astronaut or a doctor. So for you, what what did you originally envision yourself and kind of how did you get to
1: to where you are now? I guess there's two prongs to that. Uh, when I found cannabis, it wasn't the same experience for me as everybody around me. Um, my carousel in my mind went from hundred miles per hour to 50 and I could finally mm-hmm. choose my ideas, my thoughts, my words that everybody had been so harsh on me my whole life about uh, not taking that time. So it became really medicinal for me at a young age. Uh, and I knew that cannabis was going to be like my destiny. I just didn't know what facet, cause th- it's so weird to say, but like, yeah, like I, I as a kid, I wanted to be an actor, uh, mm-hmm. movie star, uh, musician and Then it like, you know, as a teenager, I was like, I want to be like a cannabis guy, however, Mm -hmm. however that becomes. And so at uh, 16 years old, I met this phenomenal woman who was debilitated with breast cancer and she needed uh, help growing her medical cannabis. And she offered to teach me how to grow medical cannabis Mm -hmm. um, on a pretty large scale if I would become politically active. And that was a great introduction into like, you know, me having some really great foresight on what the reality of cannabis would be. And then uh, right at that same time, like music became massive for me. And as a musician, like I succeeded. Um, I got to play massive shows and festivals. I met my wife at my album release party. No kidding. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Like, and now I learned a lot from being a musician Mm -hmm. and put that into creating content. And like, you know, as I say, I wanted to be a movie star. Like I make I make movies every week. Right, it's it's it, it's super cool. Um, so yeah, today I'm totally living everything that I wanted to do when I was a little kid, and I mm. constantly give props to fourteen year old Andy.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. And so, when you say you you first start getting involved in terms of um, a career path, like what what did that look like? What was your first real occupation in the cannabis space?
1: Uh, my first real job in cannabis, I would have been. 18 years old i met a guy in california getting out of a cab at coachella Mm -hmm. um he was like hey do you have a grinder i said yeah man nobody in california has asked me for a grinder (laughs) you must be from canada he's like i am i'm from vancouver let's smoke blunts okay (laughs) uh started going to vancouver for weed vacations and then i guess that would have been 2014 Mm -hmm. i moved to vancouver to grow cannabis and work in dispensaries Mm -hmm. and uh really like you know what commercial professional cannabis was at mm-hmm. that moment, really the, the breaking ground, improving ground right around the Allard Injunction and where everybody gained the right to, um, you know, have medical cannabis. Mm.
0: Yeah. And so between then and now, I mean, the, the landscape has changed a lot between when it was an illicit <sighs> market versus now that it's a legal market. How do you feel we're taking the approach to legalize cannabis? Is there any sore points that you have anything that you wish we, we would change?
1: Yeah, of course. I, I could gripe about anything, but you know I'm a <laughs> I'm a real wine scholar, right. right? I know I say that so pretentiously, um, but if you look at like the end of prohibition in alcohol, like it wasn't all fun and games. You walked into uh, a building with a person with a hole in the wall with cages in front of them, and you had a passport, and you could purchase beer, wine, mm. or whiskey, and then you got that in a paper brown bag, and you couldn't open it inside the store. Oh hundred years later it's a lot different than that Mm. um my gripes you know are just like of every moonshiner i guess where for a long time as an activist uh people really look at you differently which is upsetting um but now in a legalized cannabis framework you know uh, people really respect what you've done and want to give you kudos for believing in something so wholeheartedly Mm. for so long uh, it's always very interesting, you know, speaking at colleges and universities and all of that. And then, uh, you know, for years being called a drug dealer and worrying about going to jail right. and growing cannabis and, and, and really <laughs> learning all of these things that, uh, that built this new legal system that seems to be being taken advantage of by right. uh, people who do not come from that background. Right.
0: And you, you made the comparison to alcohol. And I think you're, you're absolutely right that we're seeing a lot of similarities, especially in how you buy it. Right. You, you can't even have, um, open windows in a cannabis store. They have to be all, um, opaque right? <laughs>
1: Prepo- preposterous, preposterous <laughs> rule. Cause you know, what's yeah. super unsafe. I had, I was a, a partner in some dispensaries that we uh-huh. opened in Calgary and, uh, it's so unsafe. You stand in there and you can't see anybody coming in. Why right. would they why would they create an extremely unsafe environment for mm-hmm. this product that they were so worried about regulating and mm-hmm. having all these worrisome and they make you have all these biometric scanners for your <laughs> safe, but you can't fucking see the person coming into your store before they come in? Like right. that's a that is a poorly thought out rule. Yeah.
0: And at least I from from what I think is happening and if if we model the the California model of medical cannabis, I I think that we're gonna be starting on very strict rules and then they'll slowly relax over time. Um, so I I hope that things like that change. Common sense starts to prevail. Even even the milligram cap on on edibles. I'm curious as to as to what you think. Do you think the tel- ten milligram cap is way too small?
1: Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's the mm. stupidest. <laughs> uh, it was such a burden to the retailer yeah. and to the market creating that cap in a product that then was. Had to be excise stamped mm. and packaged, right? They they shot the re, uh, the manufacturer in the foot this very small margin uh, CPG item that um, you know. Then you had to stamp and tax and and put in that stupid package, and you can put and then where do you save all your money by mm. putting no cannabis in it? Um, but let's sell them for five bucks. Right. That created instant distrust mm. between the consumer and the retailer, right. um, and that trust is still trying to be earned back. And I think if you want to contrast a lot of things to the California market and the end of the prop 216 days, Mm -hmm. the reality of that is, is that California still has a bunch of outlaws and like those guys ride, you know, the guy, and a lot of the guys who are making it and who have made it have been true to themselves for 10, 12 years and have just figured out how to work within the system. But there's still guys that have the illusion of being good guys that are truly snakes, like, uh, you know burner is a is a good example of one of those guys who really colludes a lot and works with some pretty sharky people yeah. Anyways. Um, but, <laughs> but the milligram thing and the medicinal yeah. side and the end of Prop 216 in California, like people fought hard. They were like, no, these pack, the, like you need to let us advertise. You need yeah. to let us package this cool. We need to have this much. We need to make cool dispensaries. Um, if we don't do this, then why would anybody ever come here? Mm. And you know, and they made it safe too. Like I go into dispensaries in California and it doesn't matter if, back in the medical days when I got a fake cannabis card on <laughs> Venice beach, um, there was a security guard out front strapped bulletproof vest, wow. you know, and you go into them in Hollywood today, rec or med- medicinal. Yeah. And there's the same security guard. Yeah. And for me, that's like, you know, you feel safe in a dispensary mm. in the, in California, uh, specifically not so much inside the Canadian framework,
0: mm. That that's so interesting. Yeah, that, that's such an interesting contrast. And i I'm curious, you know, when. When California wanted to have some sort of framework for legalized cannabis, they started with the medical model. That was the easiest way to do it. And you found mm-hmm. a lot of overlap between recreational and medical patients. And there's a lot of lot of dispute between, okay, what's medical, what's recreational? What does that mean for you? Are, are all patients really medicinal? I know you're a medical patient yourself, so it, it'd be great to get your your perspective.
1: Yeah. Adult use cannabis Mm -hmm. is, is, you know, important for your physical and metaphysical well Mm. Um, calling it recreational, I think is kind of like stupid Mm -hmm. because it's, it's, it's a bad blanket statement. It's adult use product and, you know, anything in the adult use segment, uh, can have its medical benefits. Mm. So I would like to hope that, Everyone is getting the medical benefits of cannabis and balancing their endocannabinoid system. Right. Um, do we need to think about them as medical patients? No, because that whole idea of like treating everybody like a patient got really annoying and overwhelming in the, in the previous medical system. Mm. And now with legalization, we've completely forgotten about every single person who fought for everything to get here. Right. And you're not even allowed to say that, you know, this topical is going to help with your shoulder pain. Mm. Um, It's a hard one. It's frustrating. Yeah.
0: yeah. No I, I'm physical and metaphysical. From, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's a good point. And I'm asking just from the perspective of having worked on the medical side, I, I was a patient educator um in the medical at nhs right yeah at nhs yeah i was patient
1: 42 for the original calgary clinic
0: no kidding eh yeah (laughs)
1: that's
0: that's awesome yeah so you you were you're one of the ogs you were here from the start and you know i i've seen a wide variety of patients um you know having talked to them you know in in my in my head originally i thought that a lot of these medical and recreational patients were, were the same demographic and what i found was the majority of people that came into my clinic were 50 60 plus they Got a referral from their family doctor. Look, they're looking for genuine help um, for to to reduce their ailments or to reduce their their other prescriptions that their doctor was happy to prescribe. Um, so it, it's interesting to me that there is sort of this hard to. Describe relationship between the medical and recreational patients, right? Um, and whether or not it's just a framework that we're trying to establish, or if there there really is a genuine dichotomy between the two of them. But I, like like you mentioned, though, is a lot of people are, are seeking relief from a, a wide variety of reasons. So it's it's hard to put a finger on. Um, totally. And and it, I consume cannabis
1: um, for a different reason than you consume cannabis right. uh, because of how cannabis affects my body right. so you know it it's it, it's extremely hard and i couldn't imagine being a patient educator in that system and trying to hold the hand of somebody who's dealt with the propaganda of reefer madness mm. this whole time i've heard it all i remember sitting in uh, <laughs> nhs and over listening uh this nice old lady who was going through uh cancer treatments and she was only taking the tip of a toothpick's worth of <laughs> cannabis oil yeah And somebody was like, no, no, like you, you need so much more. And she Mm -hmm. truly felt there was that great placebo relief Mm -hmm. for And so that was a super interesting moment for me too, where cannabis was medical, had medical value without even actually affecting this woman. Hmm.
0: That is really interesting. And right. Because that, that placebo effect is there too. Right. Um, And I, I saw that too from, I saw, I saw both sides. So I saw some patients taking, um, 80 milligrams four times a day and saying, this didn't do anything. And I, then I had patients that took that microdose, that 0.1, that 0.2 of a CBD oil, and said so they they found great benefit. So I, I think it's more, I think it's a super individualized medicine. And I think it's really hard with the data we have now and the infrastructure we have now to really have a proper medical system, right? We don't know how a particular strain or particular dose is gonna affect you and especially your specific relief that you're trying to achieve. Um, where I see things progressing and in sort of creating more of that fork in the road between the medical and rec is once we have more data about um, other cannabinoids, other formulations, other specific doses, then we can really kind of get um, people getting specific really for cancer, let's say. Um, But that's, that's all in the future. So hopefully with data and hopefully with um, having conversations, educated conversations, we can, we can get a little bit more towards uh, that point. How do you feel about people comparing it to alcohol? You know, for alcohol, you can't get a prescription for alcohol, and it's arguably way more harmful. You used to. That's true. That is true. during
1: Prohibition, that was the only way to get booze, get a Mm. prescription from your doctor. And uh, that's why there's a great distillery on the Naramata bench. Oh, what's it called? I feel terrible. I forget (laughs) it. But they have a doctor's order gin because that was the spot where the doctor used to prescribe booze and they would, and they would distill there as well. Wow. And so for me, like I, I'm, I became a Canadian wine scholar. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a wine and spirit education trust level Mm -hmm. three, because to me when I learned about wine, the first time I saw that documentary Psalm on Netflix about the master Mm -hmm. sommelier program, I was like, Oh, this is cannabis is wine. Just nobody's wrote it down. Mm -hmm. Like nobody's doing this the right way. Here's, here's the opportunity. And so like I often say um, and stand by it today that cannabis and wine are like identical. Mm. If we look at them at at the grape and the trichome head, Mm. it's a circle with a waxy cuticle that encompasses an (laughs) intoxicant, terpenes, Uh. flavonoids, Uh. esters. With cannabis, we need to decarboxylate it to make it an intoxicant. With a wine grape, we need to ferment it to make it an intoxicant. They're both varietal specific, they're both indigenous to specific regions around the world and mm. express different varietal characters depending on where they're growing. Um, if we don't really contrast these things and we've learned from it, uh, then I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. Now mimicking alcohol law, kind of a bad move, mm. uh, but mimicking the history of alcohol, fantastic move.
0: As someone who's who's pretty wine naive um, and as someone that doesn't really know a lot about wine can you tell me what makes a good wine what are good starter
1: wines that someone should should look for there are so many great wines of history and all of them your mom doesn't drink unless you're like (laughs) a unique and specific individual who is blessed with um interesting parents who liked wine um great wines you know People often think that like champagne is awesome, but the price tag of champagne isn't very awesome. 60 bucks a bottle. You're looking at Vuv Clicquot. You open it. You're like, ah, bubbles, whatever. You Mm -hmm. usually spill it because nobody actually knows how to open a bottle uh, of sparkling wine. But there's a lot of great um, Prosecco in -hmm. the world. And it's not La Marca. I can promise you it's not any of the ones that have the huge end caps Mm -hmm. um, at the cheapest liquor store in your town. But there's great. Great Prosecco. Uh, Juicy Prosecco is a wonderful one that, uh, you know, displays the character and characteristics of the place. And it's easy drinking, beautiful bubbles. And Mm. we as, you know, North Americans don't drink enough bubbles. Mm. Anywhere else in the world you go, well, Europe especially, like everybody's drinking bubbles in the afternoon. Here we save it for special occasions because it's this expensive, exquisite thing. Um, So like Prosecco, great way to get into things. Mm. And just mimosas. Uh, But then Riesling is like, you know, the wonder child. Everybody shits on it because in the 80s and 90s, it was all just like this sweet crap that Uh got imported to North America. But the reality of wine and wine styles and cultures is they usually stay pretty localized until Mm -hmm. some fanatic wants to go hard to bring them where they are. Mm -hmm. And so when... Real German wine styles were introduced into North America. You know, beautiful cabinet Rieslings from the Mosel that are nice and dry and super high acid or delicious Spatle's Rieslings that, from the Rheingau that are like 10% alcohol, but mm. like that sugar isn't out of this world because there's so much acid in it. <laughs> Those are what make Rieslings great again. So mm. I would say, you know, try a Riesling. Don't get Kung Fu Girl, one with a, a funky label, like, you know, spend 25 bucks on one... From Germany Hmm. and uh, yeah, Riesling, Killer, and then Pinot Noir. Like you know, these are my love childs that I'm telling you about right now. I didn't know what Pinot was because this is one that's it's the heartbreak grape. It's a very small grape. It's Mm -hmm. expensive to grow. Hmm. It's expensive to make. So it's expensive to buy. But there's a reason why things cost more sometimes. Um, so if you want to drink great wine, find a great wine person that you can go see and support a cool local business with some mm. awesome nerds who love drinking cool juice. I, I love wine nerds. I
0: love cannabis nerds. Even just hearing the passion in your voice talking about wine right now, it's it's so appreciative. Um, and in terms of, pairing wines and cannabis what do you typically look for are you pairing the the terpenes are there two that that really stand out to you do you have any favorite combos
1: uh you know i had one yesterday that blew my mind uh-huh. and i was just i was just floored on how it changed everything hmm. and i guess the big things we should start with are the, are the rules of pairing uh smoked cannabis like joints doesn't work very well hmm. vaporized cannabis you know, dabs, extracts, rosin, um, or even out of your vaporizer, your volcano vapor, whatever, mm-hmm. that's where you're going to get the pairing. Also on the nose, when you can confuse your olfactory mm-hmm. reflex, the things that actually make smell work mm-hmm. in your brain, um, that's when you get these incredible pairings because we can really only taste five things, mm-hmm. sour, sweet, salty, bitter, and umami, but we can smell any millions of combinations of memories. Mm-hmm. And that's why flavor is, is such a unique thing to each individual mm-hmm. and is and why food is such an amazing communicator because it can transport you to somewhere that somebody else has never been before because again aroma is a memory for you that you've banked in your mind mm-hmm. and we can only taste five things so um back to it i love beer and and cannabis so i'm mm-hmm. going to start with a beer and cannabis because craft beer is awesome. And mm-hmm. hops are that genetic cousin of cannabis and they work so well together mm-hmm. when they're in banging combination. Mm-hmm. So I was drinking a last best IPA, which is a great local brewery in Calgary. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's Citra and mosaic hops. And I had a puff of 90 to 119, U full melt lemon sorbet that I made, wow. which is across, I believe of black lime reserve number five and (laughs) dolato and it tasted like cotton candy in my mouth it went from beer ipa like quite bitter 50 ibu but easy drinking nice and cold and like you know quite cakey uh lemon barry on on the on the dab and together i was like why does it taste like candy floss this is amazing
0: Uh that's awesome. And you you talked a little bit about what makes a good what makes a good wine. So for you as the cannabis sommelier, what makes a what makes good cannabis? What cannabis stands out <laughs> to you? Do you have any do you have any favorites?
1: The best cannabis is the cannabis you grow for yourself. It yeah. will always and forever be because there is no better connection to the plant than mm-hmm. growing it yourself, harvesting it yourself, rolling it yourself and smoking it yourself. Mm-hmm. When we talk about getting in touch with your metaphysical well-being, uh, gardening and connecting to that plant mm-hmm. in that continuous cycle of life and death is, you know, that's the best. <laughs> that's the best cannabis you'll ever smoke, regardless if it sucks. Now that's uh, deep. Well, you know, we gotta get a little deep here on company <laughs> cannabis. Of course. Um, but you know, uh, what makes great cannabis is cannabis growing with love. Mm. It doesn't matter if you use the sun, LEDs, HPS. It doesn't matter which nutrients you use or how much nutrients you Mm -hmm. use. If you're living earth organic or if you use salts or if you do rock, wool or soil, great cannabis comes from great genetics. It Mm -hmm. comes from great care and that's it. It's somebody who truly cares. You don't have to be a great grower to grow great cannabis, but you need to not fuck it up in the first place. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of like super tight, buds mm-hmm. when i know that there's been like a lot of progressive growth hormones pgrs um but but you know you can use enough of those synthetically to make cannabis that bulks out wide mm-hmm. has a nice structure but if your cannabis is super tight in a rock hard nug well just imagine how little air right got through that in the first place you know mm-hmm. i uh it's crazy I, until I was growing cannabis again, like I, I missed sticky weed. Mm-hmm. You're just like, oh man, my fingers smell great. You're that weirdo <laughs> sniffing them. Like that's, that's when, you know, you've got something amazing and it's no specific flavor for me because yeah. you can't be uh, prejudiced towards fruit or gas mm-hmm. or anything, but it's unique and complex cannabis that makes a lasting impression on my palate that really uh, drives me crazy.
0: And who in the legal market right now is doing it best? Do you do you think anyone can compare
1: to HomeGrow? Have you enjoyed any
0: uh, any bud from LPS?
1: Yeah, I've, well, lots, hundreds of YouTube videos of doing it. No, nothing's ever come close.
0: From all those videos, who's your favorite? Who do you think's doing it the best right now?
1: Uh. Well, there's a few that I touched that I haven't actually put on video, but the Gnome Star Cannabis that I just – that I have a sample listed on the table is is really – it looks really good. Like, surprisingly, like, I was like, okay – uh, Simply Bear is getting better and yeah. better and better. They do these living earth organic beds. I know they just put in a fleet of Alias LEDs. I'm a I'm Team Alias LED mm-hmm. as well. Um, so I know they're gonna crush their next round of Mango Taffy there. And that was uh that was like that was a personal favorite when I was on the dispensary floor, mm-hmm. um, a bunch. So. Contrast to that, you know, uh, I heard Natural History, which is Atlas Growers here in Alberta, is doing a pretty good job, and they're putting their terps. They're the first people to put their terps on the uh, packaging, so that's pretty cool. Um, Where where else? No, but, you know, like, even in contrast to the dispensary, the medical days of 2014 and Mm -hmm. all the dispensaries in Vancouver, nothing comes anywhere close.
0: Yeah, like the original Whistler. Like when Whistler was really just the mom and pop shop, um, I, I know some of some of the stuff coming out of there was crazy
1: uh, on medical. I could only imagine. I could only imagine, and it's you know it's hard when you scale things, right? Yeah, like exactly. we can all be really good at something on a small scale. Uh-huh. M- moving it to commercial production is like a unique skill set that mm-hmm. takes. A time and a team and you're you're 100 right like you could make
0: an amazing dish for a couple close friends but if i told you to make that same dish for 80,000 people how do you do it to the same quality to the same scale and it'll never be the same it'll never be the same which is why i really love these small batch growers that put that love and put the care into their plants but on the topic of food i mean you're you're of course a big foodie um Do, do you have any, any, like, what do you cook at home for yourself?
1: (laughs) Uh, Shout out to my wife, who's an incredible (laughs) chef. Uh And uh, like, I very rarely cook. I'm i I'm a really great critic. (laughs) Uh, Not so, not so great at the cookery. And that's why Mm. I work with incredible chefs. And, uh, you know, I'm a great citizen scientist, but in the kitchen, like, if I have time, I'd love to go to culinary school. Yeah. Cause I like, I suck. And my wife's (laughs) such an amazing chef. Like she just whips stuff up. She looks in the fridge. I'm like, Oh, there's nothing to eat. She's like, what do you mean? And she's a vegetarian too. Again, shout out to her. Like I thought a year ago when she became a vegetarian, um, you know, for just the reason that she doesn't really like meat, that my life was going to be over. Like I need meat with every meal (laughs) and you know, I eat more meatless meals mm. a week now than mm. i do with meat which is fantastic yeah. and it makes her skill and her cookery so incredible to see her utilize um these things that for so long i thought is like simple side dishes mm. mm-hmm. now come to life as like full nutritious delicious uh, meals like if there's one thing that she does amazing it's her ramen and it's all the way from scratch like she makes her own chili paste nice. uh her own broth it's all veggie and it, and with some uh, paneer cheese and it's Ooh. just incredible like it's it's it, it tastes like butter <laughs> and fucking love yeah. And like, that's that, that's the shit. So yeah, Yeah. shout out to Sarah. I love your cooking. Thank you, my love. I'm glad Uh, I married you.
0: Big shout out to Sarah on the show. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's nothing better than a good combination of cannabis and food and cannabis and a dining experience. Can you tell me a little bit more about cannabis cuisine and what, what that sort of scene looks like?
1: Yeah. I'm fortunate to like know and get to work with so many of the coolest pioneers in this space. Um, if you've seen Cooked with Cannabis, uh, on Netflix, shout out to my boy, Mm -hmm. Chef Manny Mendoza. Shout out to my boy, Chef Nate Santana. Um, big ups to you guys. Great guys that are just crushing the culinary scene. And there's so many of these incredible chefs that are just pushing it. Um, you know, put, pushing it hard. I don't think anybody's pushing it harder than Manny, though. Mm-hmm. I, I got to give Manny, like, the biggest props. I he's out of Chicago. It's awesome. Okay. His restaurant, Herbal Notes, he's going to yeah. open a restaurant called Herbal Notes, and he's been doing these Herbal Notes cannabis dinners that I've been lucky enough mm-hmm. to go down to Chicago and work with. Um, and he's going to open a restaurant, and he's going to be, like, that first... Uh, cannabis restaurant And not only the first And the coolest And the fucking most badass But it's gonna be uh, You know Owned by somebody From the community mm-hmm. That represents His community uh, And that's what's really 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 Fucking cool to me um, Yeah And the can, You know The cannabis scene For for dining Is like Primed to explode mm-hmm. As we look at Our landscape Of you know What has happened In the world of pandemic Like we're seeing So many uh independent uh restaurants looking to go out of business, like trying to scrap together anything. If we don't think about cannabis legalization as the next evolution of dining just like we did with the end of alcohol prohibition, mm-hmm. then we're fools and we're shooting ourselves in the foot. And I know uh that there are quite a few bodies really um trying hard to get cannabis consumption mm-hmm. in food uh, legalized all across Canada, you know, bigger government bodies than I ever even understood are actively involved in trying to make this happen because this will bring cannabis tourism. Um, and it's, you know, it's it, it's that big next step for me and something that I've always loved, right? I've been throwing parties in, uh, you know, uh, bought out restaurants mm-hmm. and Airbnbs for years just to prove a point that it can be done uh, safely and effectively. So I can't, I can't wait to see that that mm-hmm. tipping point uh, hopefully happen here. It's
0: super exciting. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about cannabis-infused foods. Like, you're gonna have a 100 milligram um, you know, infused thing of uh, packed ramen. Like, it's it's a lot more than that. This is fine dining, this is fine cuisine, and the doses are a lot smaller too, right? Like, these are only two, three milligram doses per, per meal.
1: Yeah, that's what I try and do. And then I, uh, I, I like to do two and a half milligrams mm-hmm of thc and I, I i again pair with wine every dining experience i've done every cannabis infused dish is mm-hmm. paired with a wine Interesting. and the wine is there to contrast the stories of wine are those of smugglers and renegades and people doing what they wanted to make shit happen and when you can tell those stories in contrast and build those bridges, it really helps the normalization of cannabis Mm -hmm. because when people can, uh, you know, consume the information of cannabis like wine in that same atmosphere, it really makes them feel comfortable with it. Um, so I stick to a low dose because I do specifically pair with alcohol at Mm -hmm. all of my dinners. Um, and then we do 25 milligrams of CBD for dessert. So your fifth course and after, so about after an hour and 45 minutes, you know, you've had 10 milligrams of mm. THC. You've had about six, maybe five ounces of wine because it's pretty short pours uh, mm. to keep everything quite mitigated. And then um, a good slap of CBD just to, you know, I'm kind of cheating because when you use CBD, it, it, you know, it kind of does kill the buzz it of even the THC. Out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's that's kind of the point there so that mm. nobody um, goes home over consumed. And I don't, uh, right. we started out letting people smoke through the whole dinners um but i quickly kiboshed that because it just that's not part of the fine dining experience i want to serve you five incredible courses and for you to enjoy them and like you know there isn't downtime we're here to eat Mm -hmm. uh smoke before smoke after
0: right and were you not maybe a little bit leaning in about combining alcohol and cannabis i know there's a lot no if you read if you read the labels the warning labels they're going to tell you, you cannot use cannabis and alcohol because they'll intensify each other's effects and it can be dangerous.
1: You, you think they pair nicely, though, and you, you don't think that's any concern. Find me a Canadian <laughs> who consumes cannabis, who hasn't smoked a joint and had uh-huh. a couple beers, uh-huh. right? Find me the guy on earth that isn't smoking weed and having a couple drinks. Mm. Where it becomes a detriment mm-hmm. is when somebody who is not a cannabis consumer, who's a total neophyte, mm. has too much to drink, right. and then wants to smoke a joint once they're drunk. Mm. Now you're in for a bad ride. Right. But if you had started smoking weed and then had a couple drinks through it, it's going to be a totally different experience mm-hmm. than what we just started in the parallel. Right, and even just a
0: little bit of wine with like you said 10, 10 milligrams of, of CBD and THC they they' it's just enough to act synergistically to get you where you want to be rather than you you know crashing or being on the moon just like you said when when someone's you know smoking a joint while they're eating right it's it's a lot more of a slow ride it's controlled
1: mm-hmm. it's it's a paced environment that's I've built. In my setting, at mm. least, because I know lots of cannabis chefs and cannabis events do it totally different. I'm kind of frowned upon because of my wine thing, but mm. I think I'm proving a massive point uh, that it this this is the this is the evolution, this is the appropriate setting, and this is how we do need to do it.
0: Yeah, I think cannabis cannabis consumption lounges and cannabis dining. I think, like you said, we're I think we're at the verge of a renaissance, especially once. Uh, covid restrictions start to open restaurants new restaurants can start to open i really really think that we're going to start to see a lot of cool stuff um what does a dream consumption lounge look like to you? do you, do you think you should be able to because when when we legalized smoke-free ontario closed all of the consumption lounges that we had we had two here in windsor ontario where i'm from and they closed totally. funnily enough after legalization um so what does a dream consumption lounge look like to you if, if you had to kind of design it
1: does Planet Paradise still operate in Toronto? I don't that was the last know. vape lounge I went to in Ontario. I think they still do. And CCHQ is still rocking in Vancouver, but I know nice. Smoke Free Ontario. I got, had a big debate with them when they do the Ontario Craft Beer Festival, which is the largest craft beer festival mm-hmm. in Canada. And they put up that... Uh, smoking section in the middle of it for cannabis consumers. And I wrote email after email to not hear anything. And I thought that was just so Mm short-sighted and ridiculous. Because if there is one environment for overconsumption where it wasn't appropriate (laughs) to encourage the consumption of cannabis, it was there at a beer fest. If me and my boys are going to go smoke a doobie outside, we're going to do it regardless or not. Right. But if you give people the opportunity to think it's cool and new inside a consumption mm. environment, mm-hmm. that's a recipe for disaster. Mm. Um, so back to what does my dream look like? My dream would be a 30 seat wine bar style, mm-hmm. very cool, small, hip hop. Nobody's smoking cannabis in there. Mm. I would like to have it like a cigar room style, nice. either up top mm. or the you know, where it's heavily vented, it's not somewhere where there's any gonna ever be any lingering smoke. You really kinda do it like the the Shisha Lounge. Mm-hmm. Um is that is that part ever gonna happen? Probably not. That mm-hmm. part'll probably have to be converted into some kind of open air patio right. that I have some stupid half commercial, half residential mm-hmm. uh license where once you go up the stairs it's actually a private residence, so you can smoke on the patio. Um, but in a perfect world, they would let me build a cigar room mm-hmm. like they used to exist all over. And if, if an adult use product is chosen to be used in an adult use scenario with adults who are trained in the consumption of that adult use product, mm-hmm. uh, kind of just makes sense to me that we do it as opposed to sending people home to let them have their own ride.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think you made a good point about this being it's more high end. It's not dungeony. We're moving away from the sort of cultural stereotypes that a lot of people already associate cannabis with. I'm super <laughs> excited for people that are into wine to start getting into cannabis and to start viewing it the same way. I think it's inevitable. So. That's that's super exciting for me. And in terms of fine dining, or just cannabis and dining in, in general, what kind of – can you give me an example of a meal plan that you would throw out?
1: Yeah, we've done so many amazing ones with so many amazing chefs. I want to hear like, your favorites. Oh, man. So like infused foie gras, my mm. boy Darnell. Shout out to Chef Darnell Jap. <laughs> uh, chefdcatering.com, go check him out. Um, his infused foie gras that whatever he does it on is crazy. Like he was the first dude I ever saw, uh, do infused foie caviar and gold Mm -hmm. on toast points. And I was like, what the fuck this is, (laughs) this is infused with cannabis. Like this is incredible. Um, Oh, shout out chef, Alex Edmondson. Uh, me and chef Alex did this super cool infused bone marrow and then we did bone marrow slides with the hundred dollar bottles of champagne that we had (laughs) that we had paired the bone marrow with so you like washing out all of the bone marrow with the champagne and all of its infused that was incredible Mm. um oh man pijo what did i remember that tuna dish was incredible he did an ahi tuna infused with cannabis in the rub uh, and it was just like, that one was mind blowing. The crema that he did with it. I can't even remember brunch. I just remember how good that was. <laughs> We've, you know, uh, man. Yeah. What else? Just so there's so much like as uh, the, the coolest thing to me mm-hmm. is that when you give a chef open, here's a, here's a couple hundred dollars, you know, we're not, we're not cheaping out on anybody's food costs. Go nuts. Like what are you gonna do? Yeah. And every dinner we've had truffles. Um, you know, we always we always shaved truffle, fresh black truffle flowing in from somewhere around the world over the shoulder. Like, you know, shit like that in an Airbnb just is incredible.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I, I love to hear that. I'm super excited to be able to have that access not only just to private you know, home cooks, but that you could actually go and you can pay for this meal. And that money can go right to these chefs that are putting so much love and so much passion into these dishes. I'm super excited for that. What's next on your radar? What are you up to? Are you just going to keep working on your YouTube channel? You have other side projects. You mentioned a TV show as
1: well. Yeah. The, what am I looking at? What am I working on? International cannabis. Yes. Yes. If you if you've listened pretty close to the end, I assume is where we're at. Maybe not, because I can ramble on for forever. <laughs> uh, the globalization of cannabis is here right now. If uh, if you're listening to this to get some kind of insight into what to do with cannabis business or where you could get your foot in the door. Let me tell you, literally anywhere in the world. We just saw the largest cannabis deal happen in the UK. that's ever happened for $7.2 billion between JW Pharmaceutical and uh, and an Irish company. You know, the the globalization of cannabis is here. Uh, So my eyes are everywhere in the entire world. And how do I change the stigma and normalize cannabis and be that guy? You know, I know there's there's some incredible warriors for this. Like some people I see flying all over the world, Clint Young, Deep uh You know, I uh, I want to make sure that I fight that global fight too.
0: Andrew Freeman, everybody, also known as the Cannabis Somalier. If you want to hear more from Andrew give him a follow on his YouTube channel, where he posts weekly reviews. It's The Cannabis Sommelier. You can also find him on Instagram at The Cannabis Somm, S-O-M-M. And if you want to support him even more, which you should, you can buy his new book. It's Terpenes for Wellbeing. You can buy it on Amazon or wherever you can buy books these days. And as always, if you want to hear more from me, you can check out my website, coffeecannabis.ca. I'm on Spotify, Apple Music, and on Instagram under Coffee Cannabis Podcast. I'll catch you next time.